All right, I think it's time. Well, good afternoon. Um, uh, my name is Lori Haas. I'm one of the pastors here. If I have not met you, we're delighted that you joined us today for this really great presentation. And you may know that we record these presentations, so for those of us that need to see it again, or maybe we missed something in our notes, that you can go to our website to check it out, and that you could let your family and friends know, maybe who are not able to be here today, for some of that great information that Dr. Rivera is gonna share with us. So I would love to open us in prayer, and then I just have a few remarks before I introduce um, our guest lecturer. So let us pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for the beauty of this day. We thank you for the life that we have, that you are with us on this journey, that we have opportunities like this to use our brains and our hearts for good, healthy living. We ask that you bless this time together in Christ's name, amen. So we're here today because of a new ministry that was just started in January called the Caregiver's Pathway. Through this ministry, we have, been, we have begun working with and caring for caregivers across our community. We have created weekly support groups in person and on Zoom. We have caregivers workshops lectures like these, and a beautiful resource room right here on the campus where you can get a lot of information and have some respite. More information about this ministry is on the table, and I believe you were invited to um, put your email down if you wanted to be on the mailing list of upcoming events. For example, if you wanna mark your calendars, May 17th is our next lecture series and it'll be on palliative care and hospice. Um, but you will get emails and information about that, and if you're part of our church family, it'll be in the bulletin starting this Sunday. If you have not yet checked out our resource center, but you're curious and you wanna see, we have volunteers today who will walk you up right after um, this lecture series. Um, so you can check it out, so you know where it is and um, how awesome it is. All right, enough of my announcements. Dr. Miguel Rivera graduated from the University of Missouri School of Medicine and completed his psychiatry residency at the University of South Florida in Tampa. His entire practice has been dedicated to the care of patients with dementia, both living at home or in families. Proper medication management is one of the essential parts of his practice. Dr. Rivera encourages the use of holistic alternatives where possible, like music, massage, sunlight, laughter, calming rooms, aromatherapy, and gardening. Doesn't that all sound great? All of those things are powerful tools in minimizing the use of potentially um, really powerful medications. So that's just a little bit, but please join me in welcoming Dr. Miguel Rivera. Uh, I am really happy to be here uh, today, and so I want to um, thank uh, Ms. Pat Gottman, who um, invited me to come in here and, and uh, share some of what I've learned uh, from doing this for approximately 20 years, and, and not only that, but also uh, having been the caregiver for my dad, who had a type of uh, dementia that is called Lewy body dementia. 
So um, between my mom and I, we were um, the main caregivers for him. So not only did I learn a bit uh, from the medical aspect and the tr my training in there, but also um, in a truly experiential way with my own dad. So let's see, yes. So my disclosures is that I have no disclosures. <laughs> so I'm not really working for anybody. Um, uh, and these are just truly just my opinions. Uh, this is my website, uh, thedementiadoc.com. Uh, my office number is on the top. And then I, uh, we are little by little inching into uh, going from a clinical practice to being a more education-based practice. And so we are beginning to put some videos out and, and Instagram and Facebook and trying to, um, like you guys, get the message out. So this is my friend Pam, and for many years she was the face of the Alzheimer's Association here in, in Sarasota, and she was the one who gave me my very first opportunity to speak. And, uh, and that very first lecture that I gave was this lecture. So this was the very first uh, talk that I ever gave, and it is still the most popular. Uh, during the pandemic, I gave this talk at uh, Harvard University at the uh, uh, Mass General, the uh, Dementia Care Collaborative. So I hope that you find it uh, useful. Because as my Uncle Al here used to say, <laughs> uh, we cannot solve problems using the same thinking that we used when we created them. So. Um, something that I've tried to keep in my own mind uh, here recently has been to keep a learner's mindset, to not just accept things and, and to be a, a believer, but to be inquisitive, you know, to question things, to um, maybe, you know, be a little bit of a rebel. And uh, because that's what kind of will get us to the next uh, level of thinking and awareness and uh, so I think we can trust what he said. <laughs> and uh, in keeping with that, then this is another really um, great quote that is a, one of the guiding principles in my practice. And that is that any symptom in an elderly person should be considered a medication side effect until proven otherwise. So when I see a new patient, the first thing I am thinking about is what can I get rid of? You know, is he taking or is she taking anything that is conceivably responsible for the symptoms that we are seeing? So this is really important um, that before you add anything to make sure that everything that is in there is actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. So these are, I'm going to present to you three um, little case scenarios that are real patients of mine. And, um, and hopefully they will um, embody uh, some of the principles that I want to, to leave you with today. So this uh, first patient was a 79-year-old lady, long-term care resident, so she was in a skilled nursing unit. Uh, and she was actually the retired director of nurses from the facility where she was now a patient. She had a history of Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, uh, transient ischemic, ischemic attacks or little mini strokes and diabetes. I received an urgent consult for the sudden onset of mental status changes. 
So she was more confused, disoriented. She had a new onset of visual hallucinations, agitation, and she was delusional that people were trying to poison her. She was up all night and sleeping all day. So she had what we call circadian rhythm disruption. And her labs were all essentially negative and she was taking a really powerful medicine called Risperdal, which is an antipsychotic drug. And the staff tells me that it is not helping. And when we review the medications and we review what's been going on with her recently, we see that she had a recent skin rash. Okay, patient number two is a 68-year-old male, also in a rehab facility after experiencing several falls and then breaking a hip, going to the hospital, and then checking at this facility, which was 10 minutes from here. So retired CPA, divorced, lived alone. Per the daughter, no history of previous falls, then had seven falls in five days. The last one resulting in that hip fracture. Had a history of mild cognitive impairment, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. And then the recent uh, hip surgery. This is, yeah, if you can already see it. Okay, so um, history of high cholesterol, recent hip surgery, delirious in the hospital, and we will talk a little bit about what delirium is. Ripped out his IVs, agitated since was admitted to rehab, waxing and waning, which is another important thing to note. Notice that you know, people who are delirious can be okay right now and be totally off the chain the next second and then go back to being pretty much normal. So this kind of up and down is very indicative of delirium. On antipsychotics as well, since uh, been in the hospital to manage the severe agitation, all the lab work was essentially normal. And per the daughter, there was a recent visit to the urologist because of urinary problems, being more incontinent. And our patient number three is a 58-year-old lady uh, a community colleague, so one of the uh, persons that I would see frequently in the community seeing patients. And, um, and after one of my talks, she approached me and she said, you know, I wonder if one of my medicines is making me worse because I have a brain that is working on a three second delay. So she knew that things were just kind of spinning, but she wasn't getting anywhere. So history of, has had a history of depression, insomnia, but otherwise no problems. And she had a motor vehicle accident approximately three months ago. And in the aftermath of, of that was when the problems with her cognition began. So just to discuss um, some of the reason why this issue with medications is so important. So this is from the CDC. They have all kinds of good statistics there. Approximately 82% of American adults take at least one prescription medication, and almost 30 take five or more. Now, if you see the kind of patients that I see in nursing homes, sometimes it can be 10, 20 medications that they're taking. So in those 65 and over, 40% take between five and nine medications, and 18% take 10 or more. This 
leads to 1.3 million ER visits and 350,000 hospitalizations due to adverse drug events each year. For people 65 and over, which by the way, it's me in five years. <laughs> oh my gosh, like <laughs> what, did, what, what happened? <laughs> um, so 450,000 ER visits, uh, and that resulting in approximately 125,000 hospitalizations due to adverse drug events. And this uh, results in approximately three and a half billion of extra medical costs, 40% uh, of which are deemed to be preventable. So according to the studies, one in three older adults taking at least five medication each year is going to have an adverse drug event. So about a third of people taking, of elderly folks taking um, five or more medications is going to have an adverse drug event each year. And two thirds of these are going to require medical attention. Older adults, uh, age 65 and over, are two and a half more, more likely to end up in the ER, in the emergency room, and seven times more likely to be hospitalized because of something that the medications are creating. If um, adverse, adverse drug events were an, an illness, it would be one of the most uh, common are causes for death in the United States, like between the fourth and fifth cause of death. Okay, so this is from the, again from the CDC, this is a, exactly what the, the page looks like. And it says that um, an adverse drug event is when someone is harmed by a medicine. And, and these are some of the statistics that I quoted, how older adults, uh, end up in the ER um, much more than younger folks. And, um, and what's important is that most of the time that we end up uh, in the ER because of an adverse drug event, it's usually one out of a small group of medications. So most of the hospitalizations are due to only a few drugs that should be monitored carefully to prevent problems. So if you're taking one of these, it's important to note that. So blood thinners like Coumadin or Warfarin that you need to you know, constantly check blood levels is one of them. Medications for diabetes like insulin in particular. Seizure medications like Dilantin and Tegretol. And opioid medications for pain. So hydrocodone, oxycodone, Ultram, those kind of meds. Those constitute the vast majority of the reasons why people end up in the ER. So what are some good things that we can do to help with that? Number one, be aware of what you're taking, right? Super important. Um, but there is a publication that they update every few years, um, which is the beers criteria. And it's, it's got nothing to do with tasting beer. Um, and uh, and it is a, basically, the title says, the American Geriatric Society Beers Criteria for Potentially Inappropriate Medication Use in Older Adults. So if you Google 
Beers criteria, you can put American Ger Geriatrics Society Beers criteria. You will be able to pull this up. You can just find it easily online. And we will talk about a lot more about this um, in a couple of minutes. The other thing to get or to look at is that an online drug interaction checker. So there are several where you can input your medications and it'll tell you whether there's a concern. Now, in psychiatry, we prescribe medications that interact with everything. So it's not so much that there may be an interaction, but what is important is to be aware of those interactions. Because in psychiatry, we know that our medications interact and we manage those interactions. But it is important because sometimes those interactions can be quite severe. And, and you know, particularly with our system of medicine where we see different doctors and sometimes the doctors don't communicate well and we don't know what one doctor started and another one took away, it's a good idea to just take a little bit of a proactive approach. Number one, to make sure that everyone is communicating but also that you're aware of what you're taking. So within the beers criteria, there is a particular subsector or subsection that deals with what are called anticholinergic drugs. And now why is it that this is important for people our age? And of course you will recognize some of our most beloved <laughs> medications like Benadryl and over-the-counter sleeping medicines, ibuprofen or Tylenol PM, like these are medications that you can just go to Publix and get them or um, you know, order them online and they can have profound effects on our cognition. So what is acetylcholine? So when we talk about an anticholinergic, a, um, acetylcholine is one of the most important neurotransmitters in the brain and in our body, for example. And this is what this is an example of is a, what is called a, the neuromuscular junction, which is the place where the nerves come into the muscles that lead to muscle contraction so that we can walk, so that we can, you know, pick up the remote or do anything. Acetylcholine is the neurochemical responsible for that. But acetylcholine is everywhere. And I mean that it's in the bladder, it's in the mouth, it's in the eyes. We just saw it's in the muscles, it is in our intestinal tract, it is there, it's on the bladder, um, and in the brain, it is responsible for cognition. It's one of the neurochemicals um, uh, most important in this regard. For example, these medications for dementia Aricept or Donepezil, the Exelon uh, or Rivastigmine, and Galantamine. How many are familiar with these medicines? Yeah, so these were the original medications for dementia. And all of these medicines work by making more acetylcholine available. They inhibit or uh, downregulate the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. So if you cannot break it down, you'll have more of it available and people do improve. Their thinking gets more, 
you know, clear and things in general can improve some with that. Some of the side effects of these medicines is that if you block acetylcholine in the brain or if you do anything to acetylcholine in the brain, it's also going to affect the other places where acetylcholine lives, like the muscles, the gut. And why is it that that is um, so important? So what are some of the uses for, for, uh, for anticholinergics? Anti why would you be prescribed one? Okay, so anticholinergics slow down the bowel. They relax the bowel. They, um, so for people who have gastritis, spasms, diverticulitis, ulcerative colitis, anticholinergics like bentil, can help to relax things, can help, you know, they can relieve nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain and cramping. So they can be really useful for that. Um, disorders of the uh, genitourinary tract, so things like incontinence, uh, cystitis, which is an inflammation of the bladder, prostatitis, inflammation of the prostate, uh, respiratory problems like asthma and COPD, um, there, most uh, muscle relaxants are anticholinergic drugs as well. Uh, medications for Parkinson's disease, medications for itching, many of the over-the-counter sleeping aids, and medications for dilating the pupil. All of these medications block the action of acetylcholine. So the catch-22 is that as we are using them, to help with our muscle spasms, as we use them to relieve the urinary incontinence, as we use them because we're having an allergy and they help with that, at the same time, they're blocking acetylcholine in the brain. And this can lead to significant and dramatic cognitive behavioral uh, kind of changes. So we will see that in a moment. So look at how many medications you can buy. So these are here are all over-the-counter medications that are anticholinergics. And these are examples of prescription medications that are anticholinergic. So for example, NyQuil. We grew up on that, right? NyQuil, Benadryl, Zantac for the stomach, Pepsid, Tylenol allergy multi-symptom, Dramamine for motion sickness, Clotrimeton for allergies and colds, Sominex, medication for sleeping, Unisom, a medication for sleeping. Add to that Tylenol PM. Um, and these are some examples of medications that are prescription medicines like Detrol, Ditropan, and Vesicare, they are all medications for incontinence. And, you know, I've called in uh, for an appointment. I want to talk to the design expert because um, when is it that incontinence is a problem? As we get older, right? But then the medicines that we use to treat incontinence, then they can affect our cognition. And this is where things are starting to not work so well, right? So um, there are some perhaps less uh, offensive things that we can use, and we will discuss some of those. Um, so Atarax is a, um, is a 
antihistamine that is sometimes used for sleep and, some, and for skin rashes and things like that. Uh, Flexeril and Soma are very commonly prescribed muscle relaxants. Elevil and Paxil are examples of antidepressant medications. So I hope you get the idea that this can be many different medication classes can have this quality of being an anticholinergic drug. So this is from the Beers criteria. So in order to help us find some of the really strong anticholinergic medications, they have put it in this table. So at the top it says drugs with strong anticholinergic properties. And um, so here are some examples of different antidepressants. Many of the older ones like amitriptyline and doxepin. Um, so antidepressants, uh, some of the newer ones like Paxil um, can have issues with that. Uh, different medications for um, nausea and vomiting, different types of antihistamines. So for example, the active ingredient in Benadryl is diphenhydramine. That is the same active ingredient in Tylenol PM, in Advil PM, and it is one of the strongest anticholinergics. Meclizine is a medicine for vertigo. Um, let's see, we have um, different medications uh, that are used for urinary incontinence. Virtually all of them are really strong anticholinergic medications. Uh, medic medications to help with Parkinsonism, uh, antipsychotic drugs like Cyprexa and uh, Olanzapine and uh, Clozaril are um, anticholinergic medications um, for spasms like you know you throw out your back or the shoulder hurts or something and the, you go to the doctor they put you on a muscle relaxant most of them are anticholinergics and um, let's see yeah those are still yeah, on the same class so you see, it's a good idea to get yourself a copy of the Beers criteria. And, and now, I want to say this. If you have a medication that is in the Beers criteria, again, it, it's not necessarily a situation for alarm. But it should be something to uh, perhaps have a conversation with your doctor about. Because, you know, those medicines may be life-saving. And a medicine that's an anticholinergic may be the perfect medicine for you. What is important is to just use medicines, all medicines, with awareness to make sure that you know what you're taking, that you have an idea about the interactions, that you've discussed with your doctor whether there's any safer alternatives to whatever it is that you're taking, and to have the awareness that anticholinergic drugs are cumulative. So if you take multiple anticholinergic drugs, you're going to have what is called a high anticholinergic load. And that can really increase the likelihood of having side effects, okay? And what are some of the side effects that you may encounter? So I just want you to memorize two of them, dry mouth and constipation. So you know, when we go to the pharmacy, they always give you a little sheet that talks about the medicine and what the possible side effects are. So if yours says that it gives you dry mouth and constipation, it should be, a little light should, be, should go off in your head and you can say, hmm, this may be 
and anticholinergic drugs. Okay, so those are the two really important ones to remember. And because it gives people dry mouth, it, it, it increases cavities. You know, our saliva, it, you know, helps us from getting cavities. It, it can affect uh, the respiratory system so that people can get hotter and uh, not sweat. Increases in body temperature. Um, it dilates the pupil. It creates what is called loss of accommodation, the ability of the eye to focus. It can bring about double vision and it can bring about loss of coordination. Not a good thing, right? Like, uh, first of all, it affects your vision and second, it makes you dizzy and, and, it, and it makes you more likely to have a fall, okay? So people who take chronic anticholinergics have a higher risk of falls and hip fractures. It can increase things like shaking or restlessness and if the anticholinergic load is too much, then it can actually cause urinary retention. So you see, this is why we use them for incontinence, because their side effect is urinary retention. So we're using the side effect in a therapeutic way. So they cause muscle relaxation, so we use it for spasms, okay? <laughs> the age of cell phones. All right. Yes, if, that's a good idea. If you have a cell phone, turn it off for the next few. <laughs> okay. So, in addition to all those side effects that I just mentioned, these are the side effects why I get called in a lot. Because these are like really serious side effects. And this is part of what is uh, delirium. So a big part of why I get called in is to try to tease out whether the person is delirious or whether this is a worsening, a natural worsening of their dementia symptoms. Because dementia also makes you more likely to become delirious. It's like dementia is a risk factor for the development of delirium. And how can you tell if your loved one or a person you're caring for is delirious? Because it's an acute change. You know, when you ask a family member, when did the dementia start? They'll go, you know, it was like a few, a couple years ago at some point. You know, the, the beginning is vague. When somebody is delirious, there's been an acute change and you're like, oh yeah, it started last week on Wednesday. She, did, you know, she didn't sleep and things were much worse. Like, there's a discrete moment in which this started. The waxing and waning of attention, you know, that thing that they can be very agitated or delusional one moment and totally normal the next moment. And you're like, I thought they were doing terrible, but now they seem to be totally okay. So that is one of the um, common things that we find. Increased confusion and disorientation agitation, cognitive decline, sometimes incoherent speech, and visual hallucinations. It's another hallmark of delirium. So an acute change in mental status, waxing and waning, and visual hallucinations. And many times they can be delusional, like our DON who was delusional that they were poisoning her. So part of having too many anticholinergics on board is what we call anticholinergic toxicity. And we have this um, mnemonic that we use when we're trying to memorize them. 
which is mad as a hat because they're delirious, blind as a bat because of all those eye changes, red as a beet because it doesn't it affects people sweating and increases body temperature, dry as a bone because it gives you dry mouth and constipation and urinary retention, so things are not really moving, and hot as a hair for the increase in body temperature. Okay, so I just want to show you um, some of the studies that are that speak up about this because it's worth to know that I'm just not making this stuff up. <laughs> so uh, this one says that drugs with anticholinergic properties, cognitive decline, and dementia in an elderly general population, the three-city study, this is a French study that, that is a big study where they looked at over 4,000 women and 20, let's see, yeah, they looked at over 4,000 women and almost 3,000 men, 65 years or older, uh, from a cohort, a group of people from three French cities. And, um, and what they found was that, um, yeah, so they looked at cognitive performance, they had clinical diagnosis of dementia, whether they got diagnosed with dementia or not, and they followed them at two years and at four years. So they looked at a lot of people and they looked at them for a long time. And what they found was a 1.4 to two-fold higher risk of cognitive decline on those who were continuously taking an anticholinergic drug, but not in those that were taking them and they stopped them. So basically that means that for a while, these, the cognitive problems brought about by these medicines is reversible. Like if you're taking Tylenol PM every night or you're on a medication for your bladder or something like that and you stop taking it, of course, not by yourself, always talking to your doc, and um, you can reverse some of the changes. Okay. And in particular, in the case when I have somebody who already has, let's say, moderate to severe dementia who gets delirious because they're, they're on an anticholinergic, even though their dementia doesn't necessarily go away, but the delirium does, okay? So they said the, ins the risk of incident dementia over the four-year follow-up was also increased with the continuous, user, continuous users, but not in those who discontinued the use of these anticholinergic drugs. So their conclusion, elderly people taking anticholinergic drugs were at an increased risk for cognitive decline and dementia, and discontinuing these medications was associated with a decreased risk. So this is from the Harvard Health uh, Publishing. I get their um, newsletter every so often. And um, this was when they were reporting on the same thing. Uh, common anticholinergic drugs like Benadryl are linked to increased dementia risk. Okay. Now, this is a study uh, published in JAMA in 2015. And it says cumulative use, cumulative, you know, it's 
the, you know, the more of these medicines you take, the, the effects are cumulative, more likelihood for side effects. And incident dementia. So what did they find? They found that the most common anticholinergic classes were the tricyclic antidepressants. These are some of the older antidepressants like Elevil, for example, but they're sometimes used. Now they're using Doxepin for sleep and they use um, Elevil sometimes for like peripheral neuropathy and also sometimes for sleep. So anti anticholinergics. The other one was first generation antihistamines. So medications like Benadryl and that Atarax that I showed you that was a prescription medicine. Um, second generation antihistamines are things like Claritin, Zyrtec, those non-sedating. And even though they are still anticholinergic, they are less so. This, in particular in this study, they really highlighted the first generation. So things in particular like Benadryl, which is the one that is easily accessible over the counter. So their conclusion was that higher cumulative anticholinergic use is associated with an increased risk for dementia. So I hope that you're kind of seeing the story that more and more studies are kind of singing the same song. Now this is also from the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine and this was their follow-up study like four years later. And uh, it's also, it also found that there were significant increases in dementia for anticholinergic antidepressants. So again, the tricyclics for oxopaxel is the most anticholinergic of the newer antidepressants. Medications for Parkinson's, in particular cogentin and amantadine. Uh, antipsychotic drugs, medications for the bladder, for incontinence, and medications for seizures. So a lot of the ones that the CDC was already pointing towards. So their conclusions, exposure to several types of strong anticholinergic drugs is associated with an increased risk for dementia. Now, I think that this is an important statement because they didn't say these medications cause dementia, but these medications are associated with dementia. Because I think that in particular, up to a certain point, if you become aware that you're taking one of these medicines, again, and you, with the help of your doctor, you stop it, then you should regain, at least I would imagine, a significant amount of whatever uh, cognitive problems you may be experiencing. It's a little bit more difficult once the dementia is already established. So these findings highlight the importance of reducing ex exposure to anticholinergic drugs in middle-aged and older people. Okay. Now this is an interesting study that was published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society in 2006. And what they did was that they looked at a population of people 65 and over with dementia that were going to an outpatient clinic. And what they found was that approximately 50% of them, so 50% of the people who already had dementia were taking at least one anticholinergic drug. Yeah, so, and 20% and, and of them were taking a psychotropic. And I wonder if that psychotropic was there because of the side effects, yeah. 
that the anticholinergic was, was uh, bringing about. Yeah, so, so the, the, the authors say, despite their cholinergic deficit, a substantial portion of patients with dementia are exposed to anticholinergic medications. So it's totally, it's high yield to be aware of these medications. So I just, the, the point of this slide is just to see the different medication classes where the medications have the potential to be anticholinergic. Like the first one for the GI, um, medications for uh, you know, diarrhea, medications for uh, spasms, medic uh, gastric acid reducers, uh, you know, medications for GERD, muscle relaxants, medications for Parkinsonism, medications for urinary incontinence, antihistamines, antidepressants, medications for vertigo, uh, antipsychotic drugs, medications for the heart, medications for pain. A lot of these medications um, have anticholinergic properties to it. But you already know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the key? If it gives you what and what? Okay, you each get, everybody gets a gold star. <laughs> that's it. So that's the key. Um, again, if it gives you dry mouth and constipation, ding, ding, ding. Okay, so now that I've scared you enough, um, some safer alternatives. Uh, so for example, for allergies, now these are things that I, I use. These are my uh, attempt to eliminate the anticholinergics from my life. So I use an Edipod. Um, this is a very ancient way of cleansing that dates to you know, thousands of years. Um, it's really important that you, you boil the water before you put it up your nose. Uh, there was something in the news about somebody dying from amoeba. Uh, those things, yeah, they like to eat our brains. Uh, I don't recommend that. Um, and, and, the, and the reason was that uh, apparently the person used water that was not you know, highly filtered. Like if you have a reverse osmosis filter that takes out everything, okay? Otherwise, it's a good idea to either buy some normal saline, which you can get at Amazon very cheap, um, or, um, or making sure that the water is, is boiled. Um, there are also some um, other devices out there that kind of do the same thing. This is one that's, you put batteries in it, and we also have it. We don't, don't like it as much, but we bought it. And then th this is one of the ones that I, when I travel, I take this with me. Uh, I just got back from India and the air there is, is uh, terrible and so I, it's always wonderful at the end of the day to cleanse my sinuses and it's important that you don't do straight water because it really hurts. So the, I, I use little packets, uh, Neil Med has little packets that have some salt and, and some sodium bicarb and you put those in the little bottle and, and that's okay. So you need to have a little bit of salt with the water, otherwise it hurts a bit. Um, but this is wonderful to take out, you know, the, particularly now with all the pollen, you know, that's out there. I just, not every day, but maybe, you know, once a week uh, or, or thereabouts, then I will flush my sinuses and take the gunk out. If my car is covered in yellow, like it, it's been at times, <laughs> then I'll do it more frequently. Um, and then, but what, if, what do I do with the allergies that still happen? Well, 
I prefer using this uh, as a, um, a naturopathic uh, remedy. I get it on, on Amazon and um, it, it works great. It's not a pharmaceutical you know, medication, so I, I think it's great. Um, and if I have a, a stronger allergy where I need to take something, then I take Allegra. And Allegra is the least anticholinergic of um, all the antihistamines of the, you know, pharmaceutical antihistamines. Gen X has even less. Okay, now incontinence. So there are two things that have been really shown to help, which are pelvic floor muscle exercises. They used to call them Kegel exercises, where you contract the pelvic muscles, you know, bring, trying to bring them up. And there is also what is called bladder training and there are different ways of doing that and different professionals, usually occupational therapists um, that can help with that. So these are highly, highly, highly effective. Um, you know, the, the only problem is, uh, is that, you know, they require a little bit of, uh, of self-discipline. You know, I don't know if you guys remember when the Easy Rider first came out, it was like one of those very first machines for exercising at home. And, um, and Cover Bailey used to be the pitch man, and he was a biochemist. And he was saying, you know, if you really wanna lose weight, you have to exercise, you know, you have to get on this thing, and you have to burn calories, and you have to, you know, get the muscles going. And he said, you know, it'll help you feel better, you'll be less depressed, you're gonna sleep better at night. And he used to say, you know, exercise is, it would be the, the most commonly prescribed drug in the whole world if they could just put it in a pill. But the only problem is that it takes an hour to take this pill, <laughs> you know? So it, 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 it's like the same thing, you know, these exercises really work like a charm, but we have to do them, you know? I, listen, I try to apply this to myself um, as much as possible. You know, I, I tell myself, you know, knowledge is great, but you have to put it into action. Otherwise, uh, it, it doesn't help much. Uh, so that being said, um, sometimes, you know, you, you do the exercises and the incontinence is really bad. So Merbitric is a newer medication. It is quite expensive. Yeah. Some insurance companies, uh, <laughs> I got a yay there. Uh, um, some insurance companies will ask you to fail some of the bad ones before they give you the better one, which is, doesn't make sense to me, but, um, but anyway, you know, these are not innocuous, you know, my dad didn't tolerate it, um, you know, he took it and it made him dizzy and he didn't like it, so, but in, so, but I have some of my patients on it and it's worked well for them and it's less um, a problem with the brain. Okay, muscle relaxants. So I like magnesium a lot. I've had um, three back surgeries, so I, I tend to cramp a bit. And I know that uh, when I begin to cramp, it's time for some water because dehydration is one of the real common reasons why we cramp. And then also time for a little bit of magnesium. And you know, magnesium is what they give the ladies when they are having premature contractions. So it's a powerful muscle relaxant, and it comes in all different uh, iterations. There's magnesium citrate, there's magnesium oxide, there's magnesium sulfate. So um, 
I like this formulation a lot. It's uh, magnesium citrate and some other ones. Um, it, they call it calm. You know, magnesium is very calming, helps people sleep at night. Um, so I like it a lot. Uh, Epsom salts are magnesium and it just gets readily absorbed through the skin. So if you're having a bad day or you're having spasms and you kind of throw out your back a little bit, one good way of soothing that is by using some Epsom salt. And, and I also take max citrate on, uh, um, on tablet form. Now, you know, there is a type of magnesium that is particularly good for cognition. And it's called magnesium L3 and 8. I'll, I'll be checking the spelling on that later. Uh, you spell it T H R E O N A T E. It was, my understanding is that it was discovered at MIT, and it is the one form of magnesium that actually crosses the blood brain barrier. And there it helps to protect the cells and and the neurons and it helps in the creation of new connections. So it's probably worthwhile thinking about that. Magnesium L3 and 8. Uh, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E. 3-O-N-A-T-E. No, it's over the counter. So some other things that can help uh, with muscle spasms or different pains in the body are essential oils. Um, also chamomile tea also has a soothing effect. So chamomile and uh, peppermint uh, can be really effective for that. Um, of course, during the pandemic, um, there weren't so many of us going out to get massages, but I think we are getting a little bit bolder. And, uh, I know that uh, I, I love getting a massage. I, until the pandemic started, I, was, uh, I would get one every single Friday. You know, it was like some, something really good to do for, for myself every week. And um, if you need to take something, Skelaxin is the most benign of all the muscle relaxants. All the other ones, whether it's Soma or Flexeril, uh, or Robaxin or any one of those, they're all really strong anticholinergics. So Scalaxin is a good choice. Okay, so what are some of the things, as you remember, a lot of the problems with the anticholinergics are, is that it's in a lot of the sleeping medications that you can buy over the counter. So some things that you can do, um, um, maybe let's start over here, is, uh, so these are the things that are, let's say, the lifestyle things that you can do. So the first one is getting plenty of sunshine and fresh air. First thing I do when I get up in the morning, I use the restroom and then I go outside to the lanai. And I just, I'm out there for maybe five minutes, just letting that sunshine hit my face and my eyes, because that is how the brain knows when is daytime and when it's nighttime. So circadian rhythm disruption is a major problem. And the best way to get back in sync is to get enough sunlight. 
Physical activity, you know, increases the deeper stages of sleep and the most restorative stages helps us to fall asleep more quickly. Uh, if you're going to take a nap, don't nap for longer than an hour. Avoid late, heavy, spicy meals. I try to eat at least three hours before I go to bed, maybe more if, if possible. Um, I usually eat my last meal of the day around eight and I try to go to bed around 11. Uh, avoid excess fluids after dinner because if it goes in, it's gonna come out. <laughs> and it's a better idea to you know, drink your fluids during the day and then after dinner, just maybe just drink what you need to take your medicine. So I'm not advocating to drink less, I'm just advocating to drink more earlier. And not vodka, just water. Okay, um, avoiding stimulants, so things like caffeine, you know, in coffee or tea, you know, some people can have a double espresso right before going to bed and it doesn't affect them. Uh, you know, some people are very sensitive to that. Um, stimulants can also be, you know, stimulating TV, you know, so maybe to watch the puppy channel, maybe better than a UFC fight. Um, um, Avoiding alcohol is important, you know. Alcohol uh, definitely relaxes us. It uh, helps us fall asleep more quickly, but it doesn't help us to reach the deeper stages uh, of where restorative sleep happens, so people will wake up a lot more, and then they also don't get to that slow wave sleep, which is when the brain takes out the garbage, you know, and uh, where the cells just kinda go through that internal cleanup. So. It's, it's important to, to get a good night's sleep. And, um, and then check the medications because many meds, blood pressure medicines, many can affect how we sleep. Now, on the, on, on a, you know, before going to bed at night, it's important to have a pre-sleep routine. Like what I like to do is about an hour before I go to bed, um, I like to take a shower because when the body heats up and it begins to lose the temperature, that helps the body relax and it helps us fall asleep more quickly. I uh, avoid uh, blue light, so I, I turn off the TV about maybe an hour and a half, two hours before. Um, if I'm using, I have to use my phone, I have it on that night shift that it changes the color from that bright white to the amber color. So I know that if you have an iPhone, it you can just put uh, uh, nightshade or, and, and uh, you'll be able to do that. Um, you know, the mind has this quality and that is that it's going to go through the day whether you give it time or not. So the, the, what I do is I, I call it conscious relaxation time. So I know that I need to give my mind some time to go through the day and to say, well, this kind of wasn't so much fun, but this was, and I can't imagine she said that, and all those things, because if you don't, your mind is going to do it when you're trying to fall asleep. Yeah, so it's a good idea to spend a little bit of time listening to some music you like, to watch your breath a little bit, you know, to close your eyes and see how peaceful you can get. So those things are, are beneficial. Make the room dark, cool, and quiet. Those are the qualities under which we get good sleep. Um, 
You may consider using white noise or nature sounds or wearing earplugs that can sometimes help. And then one trick that I learned in the Navy, I was a Navy helicopter pilot. And, and those things are so loud, right? I mean, you know when a helicopter is coming for miles away. And, um, and I started noticing, so when I was in, in that training, we had the instructor and two uh, student uh, aviators. And so one of them was flying the aircraft while the other one um, was in the back, kind of looking for other students that were flying. And, um, you know, I was in the back just trying to be as alert and as awake as I possibly could. And I fell asleep every single flight. <laughs> I couldn't stay awake. And then, and then it just occurred to me, I said, maybe the reason why I can't sleep at night or have trouble sleeping is because I'm trying to fall asleep. And when I'm trying to fall asleep, it, it immediately means that you're in some way in disagreement with what is. And then what happens is that we kick in our sympathetic nervous system. You know, like, oh, dang, I need to be up in six hours, five hours, four hours, you know? And then you for sure are not gonna be able to fall asleep. But try this, see how relaxed you can get while you try to get asleep. I'm sorry, while you try not to fall asleep, there we go. You try to see how relaxed you can be while you remain awake. And you will see, it works wonders. Because it is our worry that we're not gonna get enough sleep that keeps us awake. Yeah, or you know, my, the number one complaint that I hear is uh, people saying, I can't shut off my mind. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can't shut off my mind. Well, give it some time to unwind and then instead of wanting it to shut off, you just witness it. Wow, the kind of stuff I think about, you know? So it's a good idea to begin to make a little bit of that um, witnessing relationship with ourselves. It makes a difference. Okay, so let's see if you are paying attention. Um, so here's our retired director of nurses who had an, a sudden onset of mental status changes. What's the other name for that? Delirium. Yes, delirium. And uh, this person had visual hallucinations and uh, the delusions of being poisoned. And uh, she had a skin rash. So what do you think happened? They put her on Benadryl and that's exactly what happened. She had a skin rash, they put her on an antihistamine, they put her on Benadryl, and things really went south. Okay, our retired CPA that had the seven falls in the five days, who per the daughter never had falls, but went to see the urologist for incontinence problems. Guess what happened? Yeah, they put him on one of those medicines that um, block acetylcholine for sure. Okay, and last but not least, the uh, social worker um, that had her brain was working with a three second delay 
and she had a motor vehicle accident, and what do you think happened? The posterior muscle relaxant, and it created that uh, uh, slow thinking. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> So I know that Miss Pat is back there. She said that she could get to any chair here within 1.5 seconds. <laughs> One question at a time, but we'll get them all. So if you have any questions, I'd be happy to try to answer them. My question is maybe a little unusual. I have a mentally impaired daughter, 53, living in a group home in Pennsylvania, and I do an IEP or ISP you know, for her. So I know she's on like 20 some medications. What is your recommendation to me as her mom and her advocate to look over these and possibly spot some danger signs? Because she has many different physicians that prescribe things for her. So you know, two things uh, come to mind. The first one is uh, get a second opinion. You know, see if there's anybody that has a really good reputation in the community. You know, that may be a good pharmacologist, and um, and see if you can. You know, that would be my first choice. So you're saying pharmacologist. <laughs> Right, so not a not an MD, not another physician. Oh no, no. I, I mean, I am a pharmacologist. Okay. Yeah, no. So okay. somebody who's well trained in medications and the metabolism of the medicines. So you know, psychiatrists are uh, generally very good at that because it's kind of bread and butter that we do. You know, we. The biggest uh, truth is that I, I, I don't think I know any psychiatric medicine that doesn't interact. But she's so, also on some for incontinence. All the things that you put up there, it, it's a description of what she's taking. Yeah. So, you know, um, the second, perhaps less... Um, um, let's say a uh, viable alternative would be for you to do the research. Okay. You know, and to print out the Beers criteria and uh, to take a look at the medicines that are there um, and to go to an online interaction checker and okay. put in the medicines there because, you know, like Medscape has one, RX, drugs has one i mean there are many you just google drug interaction checker and there'll be several that come up thank you thank so you I you can do, do that. that and and that Thanks, may Pat. help thank you very much sure did i see your hand yes um can you speak to a couple of medications specifically um zolpidem which is ambien for sleep and tamsulosin for ur urinary stuff sure um, so, all medications for sleep are tricky. So, talking about the ambient, um, you know, there's been some fairly recent, you know, evidence, amb ambient in particular, you know, the 
relationship to that and motor vehicle accidents and things like that is pretty well established. Um, you know, medications for sleep in general um, don't have really great outcomes. You know, they can make people's cognition worse. They, you know, as a class, they increase mortality. Um, you know, so, however, we need to sleep. So I totally understand, you know, why those are still a really very commonly prescribed, you know, class of medicines. So, um, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that there were many others that are more benign, but, you know, outside of, uh, you know, melatonin, which is very mild, you know, compared to ambient, so it may not really be enough. Um, there's uh, not a lot of really much safer alternatives out there. So I would recommend, you know, getting sunshine every day, getting some, you know, um, sunshine and fresh air, getting some physical activity every day, and undertaking some activity that helps you to be more comfortable under your skin. So what I mean by that is uh, some yoga, uh, some tai chi, some qigong, you know, exercises that engender breath control because breath control engender, engenders relaxation and calmness. So anything at all that can help you, because you know, before you fall asleep, the brain needs to be on alpha. There's different types of brain waves. Like right now we're all on beta. So beta, we're kind of paying attention, or, you know, oh yes, no, no, there's fat. You know, we're like out here scanning. So in order for, for you to be able to fall asleep, you need to be on an alpha brainwave pattern, which is the same pattern that we reach when we pray, when we meditate, when we do things that engender mindfulness, uh, when we work with slowing and deepening our breath. Um, because without that, you're going to have to artificially create the state for you to fall asleep. Okay, thank you. And then the tamsulosin? And then the tamsulosin is uh, it's a medicine actually to help uh, people go, not to keep people oh, from okay. going. So okay. it doesn't have those side effects. Uh, okay. as, yeah, it's not an anticholinergic. Great, thank you. One for two. One for <laughs> So someone taking NyQuil, that's going to make them have dementia? Well, um, yeah, and taking NyQuil is associated with worsening of cognition. Now, whether it's, so it's associated, and I, I try to make that distinction, you know, that it's not causative. We cannot say these medicines cause dementia but we can say that these medicines are associated with dementia. So I would basically follow the advice I gave her, which is uh, get outside, get sunshine and fresh air, get some physical activity, and do something that helps you relax. If you like singing, do that. If you like dancing, do that. If you like going out for nature walks, do that. 
Uh, if you like playing with your dog, do that. You know, there's like countless things that we can do that bring about those kind of positive states of mind that will help you to be able to relax and to give yourself, the, give yourself uh, and your mind the opportunity to unwind at the end of the day instead of being on TV, paying attention, being on the phone, yakking with people, and then, okay, I'm going to go to bed now and expect that that transition is going to happen. Unfortunately, you know, that's another design flaw. So, I'm, I'm, you know, when I get my, my audience, I, I will talk about that. <laughs> Okay. You didn't mention oh, I'm sorry. Relaxium. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, you didn't mention relaxium as one of the sleep aids that I see advertised on TV. I don't know. You know, I don't know what that is because uh, that should tell you I don't watch TV. Yeah, that's good. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. so I don't know what relaxium is because you know, truthfully, most of the TV. Now listen. Let me take that back. <laughs> Let me take that back. I do watch TV, but I was like, for example, I was watching the tennis channel because Indian Wells, for any tennis players here, Indian Wells was going on. So I was watching that. But I don't watch news, you know, I don't watch things that upset me. And it seems that every time I get to the TV, things are upsetting me. So, you know, I, I tell people to take a little bit of a drug, a, a TV holiday. You know, just if you want to sleep better, just how about if you watch no TV and you watch no news for seven to ten days, let me know how things are going. Do a little bit of breathing, a little bit of meditation, going outside with your puppy, you know, something like that, and uh, um, see how things go. So. <laughs> All right. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, my wife and I are uh, past 65, and fortunately, uh, thank God, we don't take a lot of medicines. However, we do take a lot of vitamins, and I was just wondering what your uh, position is on vitamins, and if you're in favor of vitamins, what vitamins do you recommend for people over 65? Okay, great question. Yeah, so, you know, I think in general, my statement would be it's great to get your nutrients from the food you eat and um, you know the preponderance of the data for many years now is basically saying that different iterations of a plant-based diet whether it's a mediterranean diet or the dash diet or the mind diet they all sing the same song which is more fruits and vegetables cut down on the dairy, cut on the high fat dairy in particular, uh, eliminate red meat and processed foods, maybe have a little bit more fish that is wild caught because all the fish, uh, sweet water fish from here from the US have those high levels of contaminants and things like that. So the idea of uh, uh, giving your body an opportunity to absorb the nutrients the way that um, the maker created them, you know, just makes really good sense. I, you know, I think that a lot of where we find ourselves into trouble is when we process the food that, that we eat. And more and more and more studies, uh, like a couple more studies just came out recently that were saying basically that the Mediterranean diet, which is a plant-based diet with, uh, you know, some extra olive oil and, and maybe a little bit of wine, you know, can be 
well not can be has been shown to be really beneficial for the heart for the brain you know for many things so now that being said um, I am a vegan so I eat a completely plant-based diet and I definitely supplement with some things and um, so when I see a new patient I use I always check two vitamins in particular um, B12 and vitamin D so super important and it's better to not take shots in the dark and just say, yeah, I'm gonna take one of these and, and assume that I'm okay. Because vitamin B12 needs something that is called intrinsic factor, which is something that's in the stomach that kind of binds the B12 so that you can absorb it. And sometimes people are intrinsic factor deficient. So it's important to ask your doctor, hey, can, I, can you check my B12 level or methylmalonic acid, you know, whichever one. Um, that they prefer. And the other one is vitamin D. Do you recommend a sublingual uh, B12? You know, I, I use all different kinds. You know, I used to inject myself for some time and uh, I, I, you know, depending which one they have, uh, there's a cyanocobalamin that comes in a, in a little spray which I, I use and then when that one runs out, I'll buy the cyanocobalamin. So I just kind of rotated around. There's different iterations of B12, and I, you know, there's actually some that have both, that have the methyl B12 and they have the, you know, cyanide B12. So, and then the vitamin D is really, really, really important. And, and you know, most people that come to see me um, are deficient in those vitamins. So now, you know, zinc is something worthwhile supplementing with. Uh, iodine is worth supplementing with. I do it, I just buy some seaweed and just eat that. Uh, zinc, I get in either in a liquid dropper or in little tablets. And uh, in terms of supplements, I really like uh, turmeric. Yes. You know, curcumin is really great for the brain. It's, a, it's an effective antidepressant. It's, it's a great anti-inflammatory, so I, I do that. And I, I also take that magnesium L3 on it as well. Sure. I think you already answered my question. Uh, my question was going to be, if I'm taking two vitamins, would I be better off with a multivitamin? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. It, it would depend um, no vitamins. The, the potency of the vitamins you're taking, where are you getting them. You know, I always tell people, if you're gonna buy something at the health food store, always get the better kind. You know, the, you know, I think that, you know, like my dad used to love to buy his uh, uh, supplements at Walmart, and I'm like, you know, dad, I understand that they're cheaper there, but how do we really know what you're getting? You know, so I, I, I recommend, you know, just buy the, the, the best ones that you can afford, whichever ones you, you feel are, are, you know, a good, reputable quality in general health food stores and uh, um, you know places like Whole Foods or Earth Origins, they tend to have better quality products there. Thank you. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, I apologize if you mentioned at the beginning, I missed the first couple of minutes. So outside of the standard, you know, yes, my parents take NyQuil every night to fall asleep, put that off to the side. If they have a cold and for whatever reason they take something like that, 
you, how quickly does the impact to the brain and the cognition take place? I mean, is it a one week you're in trouble or is it, no, it's gotta be chronic that you're using it for that issue? Yeah, listen, I think that short courses, um, and it also depends on the baseline of the person, like the more significant cognitive problems they have, the more and earlier on mm. they can be affected. But in general, if it's just a quick course, mm -hmm. then, you know, like if there's a need, for example, if there's a need for something for a cold, I would use the Allegra and Sudafed instead of using one of those multi-symptom medicines. Okay. Great. And, and did I hear you correctly also that while it can be cumulative, if you do stop, you actually can? Absolutely. Um, okay. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Thank you. Certainly. At the beginning, you mentioned insulin. Mm -hmm. Does insulin affect cognitive ability? No, but it's one of the ways in which people get in trouble because they may inject themselves with too much or not enough. And uh, you know, those medications, they either require blood levels or that you need to give very precise dosing. Like if you give too much uh, insulin, you can pass out. Right. You know, and if you give too little, you can get into like a diabetic coma. So it really depends. Uh, so in general, no, it's just that it's a tricky medicine, okay. but it doesn't in general affect cognition. Okay, just follow your doctor's orders. Sure, that's always a good, that's always a good idea. <laughs> I'm like, wait, is that a trick question? <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Thank you. Um, my dad takes um, Flonase for, which I, I believe is a corticosteroid. Is there any problem with that? You know, um, Funny that you should ask that because in general, steroids do tend to be problematic for the brain. Um, however, I have never really run into a study um, that really identified Flonase as um, being problematic for cognition. Um, you know, Flonase is a strong medicine. So if it was my dad that was taking it, I would um, see if there was a chance to migrate him from that to that, um, what was the name of it? Genexa, uh, yeah, from the, this one. Yeah which is, you know, organic, uh, non-pharmacologic, you know, uh, very benign. So I would, I would like to transition them to things that are more benign because there's not much that is stronger than Flonase. Yeah, so now maybe he really needs it during this time of the year when everything is blooming and, and but maybe as we roll into the fall and things are not so bad and then during the winter months, maybe he can tolerate something else. And then whenever, you know, if he really needs it, then, you know, but I'm always kind of 
trying to minimize the use of anything that is really powerful. Sure. I would just like your opinion on probiotics. Okay. Because you can get them for cheap, like at Walmart, or you can get them at a specialty pharmacy for a lot more. They're supposed to be better, but yeah. is there so, some guideline on that? Well, so, you know, I do take some um, pill probiotics, but I also take prebiotics. So those are things like legumes and um, mulberries and things like that that provide the environment where the good bacteria grow. There are also things like fermented foods that are really good for that, that are really wonderful probiotics that are totally natural as opposed to encapsulated. So I, so I try to cover all my bases. I, I have some, um, you know, nice probiotics, but I do kind of supplement that with prebiotics and then also with fermented foods. But I think in general that the evidence for trying to support your gut, you know, in, in these ways is really solid. You know, uh, the microbiome is the, the latest uh, word in the, in the medical community. So to make sure that you have um, as close as possible to a whole foods plant-based diet, you know, whether you wanted to do the the flexitarian diet or you do the DASH diet or the MANG diet or the Mediterranean diet. These are mostly plant-based diets and they will support a, you know, a good healthy microbiome. Because I was told to take probiotics because I have Crohn's and I lost my colon. So sure, so you can take them in pale form but you can also just have some kimchi, you know, have some sauerkraut, have some yogurt, have some kefir, you know, there's many types of quite natural probiotics that are not necessarily those that come into a pill. I mean, take those, but take the other ones as well. Okay, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Um, what about the daily aspirin regime? or daily Tylenol for uh, arthritis? Huh. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because uh, <clears throat> I have a friend who went to medical school with me and his name is also Miguel. <laughs> and one day we were talking and I was asking a similar question and he said, you know, Miguel, I think that the only thing we should do every day is breathe. <laughs> you know, because y y um, you know, if you have had circulation problems, like a little TIA or you have AFib or something like that where to take a baby aspirin every day is, uh, was recommended to you, um, I think that there is really strong data to support the use of that. Um, actually, I, I think that the data is superior to some of the other things like Plavix, for example. Um, the um, Tylenol use, you know, um, I think that Tylenol can be tricky with 
the mitochondria, you know, it can lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. And, and the mitochondria is the part of the cell where the energy is generated. You may want to read up about that. And because if you need to take something or if your loved one needs to take something for arthritis or physical discomfort, I would say to give turmeric a try. Yeah, and you know, I like the one from Life Extension that is called Ultra Curcumin or Curcumin Ultra or something like that. Um, that comes because the turmeric is not well absorbed but if you take it with black pepper and some other things then it gets better absorbed and also if you take it with food it gets better absorbed you know you can put it in your in your oatmeal you can put it in your salad you can put it anywhere and it's interesting because um, you know turmeric has been shown to work really well with kind of tinier doses too so it's not necessarily that you need to take big amounts but an anti-inflammatory, you know, particularly with just uh, a tiny baby aspirin, I think that some, because, you know, to use turmeric with some of the uh, stronger um, blood thinners can maybe, can sometimes, you know, be problematic. But with just an aspirin, I think that it would be okay to supplement with some turmeric. I think it may be better than uh, Tylenol. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, doctor. Yes. All right. It's almost five. One more. Yeah, it's almost five o'clock. <laughs> In light of what you said, a lot, a lot of the uh, main prescription drugs, how does a layperson do an adequate risk-benefit analysis with these drugs based on what his physician or someone else has told him to take? Well, I would enlist the help of your physician in helping you understand that. You know, I, I mean, I think that the conversation is really worth um, having. You know. Um, Do you think physicians are accommodating to that or they want to hear about that? <laughs> Listen, I think that any physician worth being your doctor should be okay with going over your medication list with you. What planet are you on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in the maker's plan. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. J. Thank you. Hey, wait a minute. Can I, can I, can I take a selfie with everybody? <laughs> All right. Yeah, otherwise my wife is going to yell at me. Why didn't you take a selfie? All right. Let's see. Okay, everybody, say hi. Hi. Oh, wait, that was a video. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh. Wait, what is this doing? Wait, wait, don't go anywhere. Okay, here we go. One last time. One, two, three.
Okay, let me take a selfie and then I'll take that. Okay. One, two, three. All right. Yeah, yeah, if you don't mind, that would be great. Okay, thank you. All right, so then I get to be here with you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you kindly. Thank you.